the Hit the Light podcast featuring Big Frog and Michael Castleberry is on the air. Covering classic metal and comedy from San Diego, California. So now sit tight and hit the light. The Hit the Light podcast is recorded live and uncensored. Big Frog in particular is not politically correct, so please don't be offended. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Hit the Light podcast. This is me, Big Frog, and I'm once again going solo because Michael Castleberry is sick and he probably could have done it, but I really don't need to get sick either. Don't want to sit in a little room with that fool and all them germinations flying all the fuck around. So we decided I would go solo again on this one, which is no problem for me, man. I'm a former lead guitar player, former rapper current stand-up comic i'm used to being on my own up there so it's no big deal um and since you know my kind of area is guitar players and i'm a guitar player of sorts and whatever i figured i would take this episode to talk about guitar players the guitar players that you know, influenced me or that I liked or that I didn't like and had to wade through to get to the ones that I did like. All that stuff. So I'll call this episode The Shredders. But really, it's not really about shredders so much as it is just about, you know, guitar players um, throughout the ages. I'm going to try to go through this on two tracks. Like, as it happened... And as I became aware of it, which is, you know, different times. But um, let's just start at the beginning. Uh, the guitar, nobody really knows when the guitar was invented. There's pictures of it throughout history in like, you know, this is kind of looks like a guitar and this looks like a guitar, but it has less strings and all that sort of thing. And basically... The uh, first actual guitar that uh, that we can trace back appears in Spain around 1200. And um, so it's been around a long time. But at the beginning there, like, you know, like classical music kind of dismissed the guitar as a serious instrument. So... When you hear like, you know, compositions by Bach or Mozart or, you know, um, very seldom are there parts for guitar because it just wasn't really considered, you know, proper or whatever. Um, that all changed in Spain. In Spain, uh, they got a hold of those guitars, man, and they just, they did amazing things with it. To me... Flamenco dudes are the original shredders because, I mean, you know, that's what they were doing. They were impressively soloing um, on top of uh, syncopated rhythms and, you know, really, really trippy shit. And uh, I became a little bit aware of that at a young age because, you know, growing up in San Diego, you know, we had like mariachis and shit like that and i can't stand mariachi music i don't know what it is about it that makes me fucking hate it so much but there is the member of the mariachi the requinto player who uh 
plays a nylon string acoustic classical um, and plays in a flamenco style not strictly a flamenco style but a style very reminiscent of flamenco and so I became aware of that early and that was like the only part of of a mariachi performance which you know unfortunately I saw a million of as a kid that I really liked, you know, that I would stay in tune for, um, were those dudes, those requinto players. Um, and I came to recognize where that came from later on and to appreciate the dudes, you know, uh, Segovia, Paco de Lucia. I even saw Charro on TV when I was a little kid shredding on fucking flamenco shit and i was like what the fuck i thought she was like a fucking com whatever she was like a comedian or a, like a sexy lady she was kind of already old but you know she was kind of fine or whatever um so those to me were the original shredders that i was ever aware of and uh and to this day i i still love that music you know um it's not, it was, it's, it wasn't hard for me to like, like it didn't require any effort. You know, the other original shredders of that time were the blues men, you know, your Robert Johnson's, Muddy Waters, B.B. King, Albert King, you know, and that was music that, you know, I appreciated it as, uh, as, you know, as an art and as the, that those dudes were super talented but I really had to kind of work to like it, you know, like, um, I didn't like it the first time I heard it, uh, I didn't like it the 10th time I heard it, I had to hear it and hear it and hear it to, to really get it, and even then, you know, I was never, you know, just a lover of blues, whereas with flamenco, when I, first time I ever heard that, I was like, whoa, what's that, I love, it. maybe it's because it's in my blood, you know, whatever it is, my DNA is like, um, 37% Spanish or some shit like that. So, yeah, you know, maybe maybe that's it. You never know. And the other dudes that um, I ever first became aware of shredding were country shredders. Like, on uh, there used to be this show called Hee Haw. And Hee Haw, they would have, like, dueling banjos and guitars and shit. And there were dudes on there like Roy Clark and Chet Atkins and dudes like that, Les Paul. Les Paul also played blues too, but he also played country. And these dudes were just, I mean, I fucking hate country music, dude. I hate it. But these dudes were fucking killing it. Killing it and clean, picking every note, clean runs. Amazing shit, you know. Now, <clears throat> at the time, you know, like I said, I'm little. I'm, I've never picked up a guitar yet or actually you know I mean maybe I had started because I was probably around 10 when I got my first guitar which promptly you know went in the closet because I wanted drums I didn't want a guitar you know and uh and I didn't want the lessons that they got me from this Mexican dude that was again teaching me Mexican songs which I didn't like so um so I was kind of starting to be aware of, of actually what it took to play a guitar. You know, I had taken a lesson or two or whatever. 
and I saw these dudes and I could tell that what they were doing was just another world of incredibly difficult even if I didn't really like the music per se you know so those are the original shredders to me which are the uh, flamenco dudes those are to me original original the blues dudes and then the country dudes who these are the guys right here who um everybody else heard their shit and said man that's the shit but plus i'm going to add this to it and you know step by step gets us you know to where we are now obviously the next generation for the blues guys are what I kind of consider the lost generation because they were lost on me. Um, you know, a lot of the guitar players that I listened to and that I was influenced by or whatever, they were influenced by these guys who are Eric Clapton, Jimmy Page, Jeff Beck, uh, on the American side was Chuck Berry, Albert Collins, Johnny Winter, dudes like that. And then ultimately, Hendrix is the culmination of all that. Um, I didn't like uh, too much of that stuff. I thought it was kind of, I don't know, corny. It wasn't, um, it wasn't heavy enough. You know, I had already, my introduction to, uh, once I, once I started with, with, uh, heavy metal, I fell in right during Eddie Van Halen. So it was like, to me, the, the shit that these dudes were doing was, was old, you know, I had already, you know, when I was like 10 or whatever, I had already seen Ace Freely play guitar, you know, and to me, that was like, you know, a, another, a step forward from, from what these dudes were doing. And I just, I don't know. To me, man, I mean, with all respect for everything, but Eric Clapton, to this day, I've never seen him play anything that I found impressive. I don't know, man. Maybe it's me. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm retarded and I just don't get it. But I just, I didn't get it, you know? So, but... You know, those dudes right there, you know, I, I mean, Jeff Beck did some incredible shit. Jimmy Page did some incredible shit. Um, you know, Chuck Berry basically invented the thing, you know, uh, the rock and roll thing, you know, um, between him and Ike Turner, who, you know, never gets no love other than, you know, he's a woman beater or whatever it was. And then there was, of course, Hendrix. And... You know, obviously, I became aware of Hendrix after the fact, way, way, way after the fact. But his impact was still felt, and even at the time, you know, his what he did visually was incredible. Uh, there was, you know, there was nothing I had never seen anything else like that. You know, I had seen Ace, and he did, you know, the stuff with the with his smoking guitar and how it would fly and all that shit. But that was very orchestrated. And the shit that Hendrix did was like very, very insane, you know? And that's the thing um, about those dudes that probably I should cut them a break. And the thing is, is that 
those dudes were um, were inventing this shit. I mean, you know, they were going little step by step by, and also what they could get away with with the audiences. You know, they didn't want to do anything probably too crazy because you know <clears throat> they wanted to to sell records and and be popular or whatever they you know. And then Hendrix took that shit over the edge. And the thing with these dudes is that all these dudes are necessary for the next generation, which is when I became enamored with it, you know? Um, because Ace Freely, fucking Ted Nugent, Carlos Santana, Stevie Ray Vaughan, Alan Collins from Leonard Skinner, all these dudes took all shit from all these other dudes. And by now, it had gotten recognizable to the point that I liked it. You know, I could see a through line between some of the things that I liked and some of the things that these dudes were doing. Now, let me start with, uh, with Ace Freely. Ace Freely, I saw an HBO special or something of that sort, of KISS, somewhere around the time that I was 10 or so. Um, maybe even younger. And I was just like, whoa, that dude is like, you know, he's from space or something, and his guitar, and, you know, and his he sounded so different from the rest of the band. I was just like, Man, Ace Freely, he's that dude, you know. And I went to school talking about it, you know. And I would talk to my uncles about it and all that kind of stuff. But my uncles were strictly like R&B dudes, you know. Uh, Earth, Wind & Fire and the Commodores and shit like that. And Santana. So when I'm trying to talk about Ace Freely or whatever, these dudes are like, nah, man, you need a real guitar player. You need to fucking listen to Carlos. And I was like, all right, bet. So, yeah, obviously, man. I mean, Carlos was, was uh, a hero of mine. You know, his tone and those notes and the feeling that he had. And, you know, it was blues but had a fucking Latino kick to it, you know. Um, it was a trip. And he was the star of the show. So that was another thing that, that was... Um, that started in the 60s but bloomed a lot more in the 70s where the guitar player could be the star of the band. And uh, and that became cool once I realized I was never going to get any drums, and which, thank God, because I can't play the drums anyway to this day. Uh, and I started cozying up to that guitar a little bit more with however many strings it had left on it and, you know... Uh, figure out a couple of things here and there, figure out maybe a Kiss song, you know, Smoke on the Water, that type of thing. And uh, so, yeah, so during that time, I started becoming aware of, of guitar players in the music that I was starting to love, which was heavy metal, hard rock and heavy metal. And the dudes that I first became aware of were Eddie. Uh, how can I explain the impact that Eddie had? I don't even know. It was another world when I heard Eruption. It was like 
the dudes who were before that were doing something else. This sounded different, looked different, uh, it had different sounds in it. It was a whole new thing. And that was what really was like, okay, that's something spectacular. That's something that I would really fucking love to do. And and that was Eddie. I mean, Eddie was our Hendrix for for what he was to that time. He changed everything. You know, little did I know that fucking that my next dude who was going to be my main dude who was Randy Rhodes Little did I know that Randy and Eddie knew each other and they already were aware of each other and competing with each other and all that shit way before I knew who Randy was. But to me, and this is just personally, I understand that some people don't think that. To me, Randy was a significant step forward from Eddie because of the aggression that he showed the instrument like for um for whatever reason you know like when when Eddie was was doing his thing he was very sick very you know fast and fucking lightning fucking quick shit that he was doing tricky shit but he was always like kind of playful with it like he was like with a smile on his face and maybe he wasn't you know not taking that shit all dead serious. To me, Randy was dead serious. When I when I heard his solos in the first uh, two Ozzy albums, I was blown away. Blown away by, by the attack. Blown away by the tone. Blown away by the way that he constructed a solo, which was like a song within a song on the Aussie records was to me another, another level. And, um, and I mean, to me, you know, as much as people, you know, will dispute anything you want to me, he's the greatest guitar player that I ever heard. Um, and it's funny because, you know, like nowadays it's so, guys are so technically proficient that they just look at things differently you know i i know a dude and he's a professional and uh he fucking shreds he's he's a bad motherfucker but he says shit like man uh wish um i wish i had grown up with heroes like uh santana and Randy Rhodes because that shit would be so easy to live up to. I guess as compared to like, you know, I don't know, some of these dudes now that do this incredibly technical shit that maybe he can't do. So he feels like, um, like these dudes are better than those dudes. And I say no to that, man. I say that, you know, there's a natural progression of things and and uh, people get better at things as time goes by. I'm not sure what it is. There's you know we have we have memory that we're born with that you know scientists really haven't uh, 
even started to fucking analyze yet, but for whatever reason, each generation builds on the other, whether it's, you know, um, we're getting faster, you know, um, the, the guy who breaks the record today in 10 years, that'll be broken. It's the same thing with guitar players. It's just, you know, it's a, it's a natural progression. So yes, there are dudes now who can technically do things that Rhodes and Van Halen, whatever, couldn't do. That's not the point, you know, the point is the impact that you make with the things that you do and the notes that you play and the sound that you make. And, um, and these dudes now that are fucking, uh, technically all over the dudes of those days, they don't have the impact that those dudes had. They're not breaking ground like those dudes, you know? Um, so to me, an argument like that is, is more or less ridiculous. Anyways, back to the, uh, back to the back then. And so, yeah, so I fell in where there was, these were my guys. Um, Eddie Van Halen, Randy Rhodes, Glenn Tipton, Tony Iommi, Dave Murray. Yeah, Dave Murray's, a, I know a lot, he doesn't get mentioned in a lot of people's lists, but he was very influential to me back in those days with his sound, with his tone, with his bands. Once again, uh, there's dogs around here, you know, um, recording at home, fuck it, there's going to be sirens, there's going to be <laughs> all kinds of shit, don't even worry about it. Back to Dave Murray. Dave Murray, man, uh, I loved him, you know, uh, I still love him. He uh, had a lot of rad shit, and one of the, one of the things that he had early before um, a lot of people was he had humbuckers in a strat and humbuckers in a strat is something that um, to this day I have two strats with humbuckers in them because it's the fucking perfect it became the super strat Dave Murray's guitar evolved into becoming the super strat and he had that shit like in 82 you know, um, his sound was amazing. His feeling was amazing. Uh, so yeah, so Dave Murray, Glenn Tipton, and Judas Priest. It seems like in every band that had like two guitar players, I picked one. And so I picked Dave Murray, and for Judas Priest, I picked Glenn Tipton. And that was the easy one. You know, he was a technical player. Uh, he had more memorable uh riffs and licks whereas KK was more of the sound uh noisemaker I call him you know noisemaker or effects sounding stuff and you know and he was cool too you know nothing nothing uh and and so is Adrian Smith you know but just those were not my dudes Tipton was my dude and um and Dave Murray's was my dude and then uh and then Iomi obviously Iomi was uh, ever present, but the one thing about him was that, you know, I didn't think that his lead style was reproducible. I didn't think that anybody would ever be able to emulate that style, probably because, you know, because of his hands, because of um, the strings that he used, 
because of the amps that he used, the guitar that he used, the volume that he played at. I didn't think that anybody would be ever be able to replicate that. I knew that I wouldn't. And even as a rhythm player, I, I never even imagined that I would be able to play rhythm guitar like Tony Iommi does. I thought that I would be able to play lead guitar like Ingve before I could play rhythm guitar like Tony Iommi. So, obviously, I, I wanted to go that way, and I went that way. Um, but... Iommi was, a, was, I mean, he was the riff master of all time. Uh, you know, he was an incredible lead player in his own way. And he had a sound of, of fucking death and doom that, that still probably nobody has ever fucking, has ever done better than that for that. So then there was them, there was him, and then there was Blackmore. Now, Blackmore was my Hendrix, okay? Um, Hendrix was dead by the time that I became aware of music, uh, really. And, um, and yeah, you know, it, it's kind of a... Uh, it's kind of like starting to watch a show when it's over. It's like it's not... <laughs> You're not you don't have nobody to talk, to talk to about it or anything like that. So, you know... Blackmore was around when I was around, and not only that, like, as far as I'm concerned, right around 82, when I was uh, really in starting to get into heavy metal, Blackmore was at the absolute top of his game. You know, I don't know, I think it was because Rainbow had already gone poppy, Jolyn Turner and all that, and maybe it was because of that reason that Blackmore felt like he needed to ramp it up like even more. So his live solos were fucking crazy. You know, he was all over the place. He was the first, you know, to me, the first metal shredder, or hard rock shredder or whatever the fuck. Because like by 82, he was doing um, arpeggios. He was the first that I was aware of to bring classical influence into, uh, into hard rock. So he was doing that. He was not exactly sweet picking, but he was doing something that was kind of the grandfather of sweet picking. And, you know, and for as much as Yngwie likes to downplay the Richie influence, uh, I think he definitely, that's where he got that shit from. I think, you know, and, and, and the Paganini, but you know, um, but there was a lot of violin before that also that, you know, didn't, uh, didn't translate to the guitar until I think Richie built that bridge. And, um, not only him, there was also Uli Roth and Michael Schenker who were doing the same thing, but I was not aware of it. You know, uh, I didn't become aware of those dudes until later. So Richie was for me everything like he in like as far as i knew and was concerned he invented all that shit and um and he was great and his stage persona and his stage presence was unequaled to this day i mean even even for even with hendrix for me because um while richie was doing the same type of shit that hendrix was was doing on stage and stuff richie was playing a lot more demanding shit you know um, Jimmy could always just add lib and, and it was very, you know, 
<clears throat> staying within the cords and all that, but he could just do whatever he wanted. Richie had a lot more difficult shit to do. Let's just say that. And he and he uh, was more, you know, technically proficient player. And at the same time, you know, he had songs and band and singers that I liked a lot more than, than I liked the music that was Hendrix. Or not just Hendrix, any of that old British... Uh, well, I, put, I lump him in with the Brits, but because he made it from there. But that type of that time of of uh, of blues rock, I never liked Clapton. Um, I never liked fucking the Stones or the Who or any of that shit. I just I didn't like it musically. So by the time it came to Blackmore, it was more everything put together, you know, because like you know early early uh, rainbow to me is like the perfect band practically the perfect band you know with a great lead guitarist with a great singer with a heavy drummer with a solid bassist and you know i could take or leave the keyboards but okay you know so to me that in that uh platform that's where blackmore took off and to me it's still one of the greatest ever you know um, ever now from that tree also because it was just happens to be right around the same time and a lot of people will never mention him and uh, a lot of people you know don't appreciate him but Vivian Campbell came out during that time and he jumped in to a situation with Dio where you know Dio so the last guitarist that he played with was Iomi, and then the guitar player they played with before that was Blackmore. And here you go, kid. You know, here's the ball. Run with it. You know, go, Vivian. And fucking A, man. To me, he couldn't have done any better. You know, he he was incredible with his tone, incredible with his, uh, his palm-muted run, staccato, you know, harmonics, you know, aggression, a lot of the new shit that was, you know, that was where shit was going to be heading. Vivian Campbell did a lot of that shit, man. And yes, you know, he got a lot of that from Gary Moore, who again, I was not aware of yet and I would become more aware of later. But to a, to a generation of metalheads and metal guitar players, Vivian Campbell was that dude, man, for a quick minute. He was only in, like, you know, I think made three albums with Dio or whatever it was. And and then, you know, he was gone pretty quick. But that impact for me was, you know, life-changing. I still, I still fucking, uh, because, you know, I'm old. And so I forget everything, you know. So I learned a riff this week and... In three weeks, I don't know that fucking riff no more, you know, or that lick. And so, you know, I have to relearn it and shit. And one of the things that I find myself relearning the most, besides Rhodes, Randy Rhodes and Vivian Campbell, um, Jakey Lee, those are the things that I find myself relearning again. Because, I mean, you know, I guess to me, that's just the best shit out there. You know, what can I say? Now... Uh, 
a lot of this took place when I when I was in Spain. You know, I was in Spain in uh, 83, 84, in there. And, uh, and I had some good friends over there, man. Bill Sylvia, Tommy Padgett, Carlos Francis, all these dudes. And, um... We played guitar. We all had we had a we had a we had school on the bass, and so it had some perks to it, man. Because they had like music classes and other stuff that you wouldn't get in some other high schools. So they had, and you know, they they check us out a guitar. Uh, it was a Yamaha classical, and uh, and we started, you know, learning to play, and we. Didn't pay no attention to the shit from school that we were supposed to learn. We were trying to learn Dio songs and Ozzy songs and Sabbath songs and stuff like that. To, uh, you know, and we were competing with each other, you know, who's going to be better and this and that. And, you know, we were, we were, we were decent. We got off to a, to a good little start, you know. And, uh, and, you know, we were, we would throw, you know, try to find tablature of, Randy, or try to find, you know, uh, try to learn a solo, you know, I would like, I like to try to learn Randy licks backwards, so that they would be mine, you know, <laughs> but, uh, plagiarism, backward ass plagiarism, but whatever, you know, anyways, uh, obviously we, we would get it, we were got into the same guitar players and stuff, and right before I left there, Ingve came out. See, and there was a thing. See, there was a thing. There was this dude named Mike Varney. And Mike Varney, um, he owned, he was a guitar player in L.A. And, uh, you know, he was not, he knew that he was never going to be that next great guitar player. He just didn't, he, he knew he wasn't that guy. And he wanted to find out who that guy was, you know. Because he knew that in Europe there were dudes like, you know, Schenker and Gary Moore and Uli Roth and, you know, killer-ass guitar players. But here, there really weren't any. There wasn't anybody coming out that was, like, blowing the fucking lid off of shit. So, he started this uh, label called Shrapnel Records. And he got a column in Guitar Player Magazine called Spotlight Column. And he was trying to find the next great American guitar player. And so he starts getting tapes from all over the place. And one of the tapes that he got was from Sweden, a 17-year-old kid named Ingve Malmsteen. Or as we used to or as I used to call him before I knew, because I read his name first before I ever heard it, was Ingwe. Ingwe Malmsteen. That was my dude. You know, and I was just like, fuck. What the fuck is up with this fucking shit? Like, I heard, actually, uh, listened to Dean Del Rey's podcast the other day, which uh, is called Let There Be Talk. It's a great heavy metal podcast. Dean's a comedian, um, funny guy, and he gets good guests, which hopefully someday we'll get some fucking bomb-ass guests too. But uh, he had Mike Varney on the other day, and or... He didn't have money the other day. I heard it the other day. And uh, he was asking him, you know, about those days because he knew him in those days. 
and um, and he straight up asked him this. He goes, when you heard that tape of Ingve, did you think it was fake? And I fucking laughed my ass off because that's exactly what I fucking thought when I fucking heard Ingve. I was like, that can't be real. That cannot fucking be real that a motherfucker is playing that fucking fast and that fucking crazy and that many fucking notes in that short of a time. There's no fucking way. It has to be fake. They slow down the tape, they recorded that shit, and then they speed it back up, and there you go. Right? Nope. Soon enough, you know, we were watching video of this dude, and we were just like, fuck, again. Another A. Van Halen, another Jimi Hendrix moment where a dude is just doing shit that no one has ever seen before. And, uh... When I got back from Spain to San Diego, uh, that's when I fucking got all into Ingve. Like, you know, they used to call me little Ingve at school. Not that I ever could fucking play like that, because I never could. I never got the I never got the sweet picking thing down. I thought that it was um, that it would be stealing from Ingve really to do that. Little did I know that a whole fucking generation of fucking dudes were going to do that and make it doing that. And probably I should have learned that shit, you know. But uh, but I didn't, really. And uh, during that time, all those dudes who came out of that shrapnel tree, which were dudes like Marty Friedman, uh, David Chastain, Vinnie Moore, Tony McAlpine, Jason Becker, Paul Gilbert, Joey Tafoya, all those dudes, I had all their records. You know, I just fucking got into it. Some more than others. I really, really liked uh, Vinnie Moore. I really, really liked Tony McAlpine. And I really liked Joey Tafoya. Those are the those are the dudes that I uh, kind of um, liked their... I liked their... Uh, I liked their songs. I liked their instrumentation. I liked their sounds. And uh, I liked that they were more unique outside of just doing arpeggios and doing Ingve shit. You know, um, at the same time, I started getting into the dudes that I didn't know about. Because what would happen during those times is you would read an interview and you would find out, oh, fucking, um, you know what? Um... Randy Rhodes was really into Gary Moore. Oh, shit. Gotta fucking find out fucking who fuck Gary Moore is. You know, um, uh, Vivian Campbell was also into Gary Moore. You know, you gotta find out fucking who, you know, who the fuck... Oh, everybody's into Michael Schenker. Everybody's talking about Michael Schenker. Who the fuck's Michael Schenker? Go back and find out who Michael Schenker is. Go back and find out who Uli John Roth is. Go back and find out who Leslie West is. Dudes that, you know... Um, incredible licks and incredible tone and um and far less tricky much more doing it just with their hands and a pick and in a lot of cases not even a tremolo and very little effects far different from what was going on you know on the west coast so to speak um and i also became aware of dudes during that time like uh 
well, like Kirk Hammett. Kirk Hammett had a guitar teacher whose uh, name was Joe Satriani. And I heard about this incredible guitar teacher before I ever heard a Satriani song. I mean, before he ever heard, had songs out, I had heard of him through uh, Steve Vai and through Kirk Hammett. You know, so so then he comes out and and uh, I I'm pretty sure that uh, that surfing with the alien has to be like, and along with uh, Cliffs of Dover has to be like the most successful probably guitar instrumentals of all time because you would actually hear that shit on the radio from time to time. So <clears throat> guitar was coming into the spotlight and these dudes were bringing it. And, um, and metal was starting to get some respect, you know. The thing about these dudes, well, all the way back to, to Eddie Van Halen, you know, people would often dismiss hard rock and heavy metal as not like real music, not like serious music, it was just noise or whatever. So I would always put on, you know, something like, um, something like Dio singing Rainbow Eyes or, um, Eddie Van Halen playing Spanish Fly or something like that to to show people, hey, well, look, these motherfuckers have talent. First, give them that, and then we can talk about the rest of it, you know. So, Meadow's starting to get some respect with these dudes. I mean, it was just obvious that other guitar players from other genres couldn't do what these guys were doing, you know. Um, high school passed... Uh, I was into, you know, uh, other dudes, too, like um, Jakey Lee became my dude. I like Matthias from the Scorpions, uh, even though, you know, I mean, to this day, he still really doesn't get any love, I guess, you know, because he didn't do anything groundbreaking, but what he did, he did it beautifully, man. Um, he, he's got tone and melody and, you know, he, he's got... Uh, edge to his sound and you know his bends are right on point that's something that you know a lot of people don't give enough credit for is you know bending notes to pitch consistently is very difficult to do and and some of these dudes matthias does it perfect michael shanker perfect these are dudes with incredible vibrato and incredible uh, uh bends you know Anyway, so high school passes, uh, I start working at a guitar shop. So I'm working at a guitar shop, and I'm going to college, and um, I'm obviously meeting a lot of dudes, meeting a lot of guitar players, and um, basically, it's funny because there's this, uh, there's this movie called Extract, and there's a scene in it where uh, Mila Kunis... She's like a hustler chick, and she's trying to, uh, she's basically trying to steal a guitar from a guitar shop. Obviously, she comes in, and she's fine as fuck, and these fools are falling all over each other, and, uh, you know, trying to impress her by saying that they play, like, jazz fusion, and they're into, like, Pat Metheny and shit like that, which is hilarious, because that's the type of shit that was going on when I was, when I was working at the guitar shop, you know? I have, everybody was into jazz fusion, you know, and, and at school too, all these music majors would be like, hey, you know, uh, <clears throat> we're putting together this uh, jazz fusion 
quartet, and we could really use somebody who plays fast, man. Maybe you'd like to be like, ah. no, I don't play that shit, man. I play heavy metal. Oh, well, you know, yeah, that's cool, but, you know, this stuff is, you know, nah, not really, not really, man. I mean, I, you know, I could appreciate it. You know, Pat Metheny's a, a, a killer. You know, uh, Al Dimiola was a killer. But I always thought to myself, man, yeah, okay, you know, but that shit would sound better if you fucking cranked up some distortion and fucking put a tremolo on that shit, you know? So that was just me, man. I never, I never like wanted to fucking expand my horizons or pretend. Heavy metal was good enough for me, you know, and, and that's what I wanted to do. And that, those were the dudes that I liked, you know, the other shit is fine, you know, and those dudes are shredders. Don't get me wrong. Those are the killers, but it's just not my fucking shit, you know? <clears throat> so while I was working at the guitar shop, I got to meet you know, some fucking, some famous dudes, you know, because, uh, like, the dudes, the dudes from Rat and Jakey Lee and a bunch of other dudes that ended up in L.A. were from San Diego, and so their guitar shop growing up was a guitar shop in North County called Guitar Trader, and the manager of that store was a dude named Dan Astor, who later became the manager of the store that I worked at in Chula Vista called Mark's Guitar Exchange. And so, um, so he knew all those guys, you know, he knew Warren and Jake and he knew George Lynch and, you know, he knew a bunch of dudes. And the thing about that is that like, you know, uh, when you get to meet a guy, you know, like you get to meet a guy like Warren Demartini, for example, and he's cool, right? Um, he's not a dick or anything like some of the fucking people that you meet. Uh, he just becomes like your dude, man. And and and, uh, and you start listening to their shit and fucking be like, yeah, fuck yeah, fucking Warren. You know, whatever. And so, yeah, man, I, I learned some rat solos and I was into fucking Jake big time. You know, um, his fucking solos were hard to learn was fucking those fucking incredible stretches he would do and shit like that. Um, George Lynch, man, with the fucking, the fucking best sound of all time. Yeah, I mean, for some of his solos, there, there's no, there is no better, there's no sounding better than that. And it was also around that time that, um, that I became really, really, really aware of, you know, the gear that people were using, you know, since those days, obviously, I've learned that your sound and, and your playing ability and everything comes from your hands and comes from your brain, you know, um, from your soul, whatever it is. That it, if Eddie Van Halen plays on your rig, he's still going to sound like Eddie Van Halen. And if you play on his rig, you're still going to most likely sound like shit. So, you know, I, I figured that out later. At that time, I was still like, yeah, man, if I get this amp, and it's fucking, I gotta get these pickups, and, you know, whatever, and I'll sound like George Lynch, and, you know, whatever it was, um, obviously, that wasn't the case, but it was cool, because, you know, in that, uh, working at the guitar shop, and having access to people, and to, um, equipment, and to, um, you know, I also used to buy fucking stolen shit in there that from people that would 
come and sell it and the store couldn't buy it, but that didn't mean I couldn't fucking buy it. So I came up on all kinds of fucking cool shit for fucking practically cheap. Um, and so, yeah, it was during that time that, you know, I found out uh, what amps I liked and what pedals I liked and what pickups I liked and what guitars I liked. Uh, from then on, you know, I, I basically became like a Charvel Jackson dude. And to this day, I'm, I'm a Charville Jackson dude. So um, all that was going on during that time, you know. And then I, you know, and I would hear shit about <clears throat> other dudes, you know, fucking uh, John Sykes, you know, Adrian Vandenberg, dudes like that that were uh, that were starting to begin to be what became like professional sidemen. That they were in bands, uh, they were in their own bands, but then they jumped onto a bigger band in order to make it or whatever. And then in some cases they went away or, you know, in some cases they came back in their own band or whatever. You know, uh, we also had our, our fucking scapegoats back then, you know, like dudes that we would fucking cap on as if, you know. Like, if you had a guitar player in your band and you thought, you know, that he did something shitty, you'd be like, hey, man, good going, dude. You're going to be like the next Mick Mars or something. As if Mick Mars couldn't have blown the fuck out of all of us. But it was just for whatever reason, it was Mick Mars. For us, it was Mick Mars who sucked or whatever. And, and I'm sure for every group of friends, there was probably a different guy that they looked at that way or whatever. Um... Nothing but respect now, you know. Fucking these dudes are fucking professionals. It's just like I like I tell my uh, I tell my nephews when we're watching sports and they're like, "Oh, that guy fucking sucks." I'm like, "Man, that guy's in the fucking NFL. He fucking he's like in the fucking two percent of motherfuckers. These dudes are all in the two percent of motherfuckers. So, yeah, I got nothing to say about none of them. None of them suck. All right. Um." After that, man, you know, my formative years were fucking, uh, were done. You know, I had already, like, you know, uh, I liked the dudes that I liked, and I had learned the dudes from the dudes that I, that I wanted to learn from, and after a while, I don't know if it's just me, but I, like, I'm, I'm great at starting shit, and I'm not real good at finishing shit. So I'm really, I'm, I'm pretty good at a lot of things. <laughs> so, and I'm not really great at anything. So, you know, um, by that point, it, my, my plane had fallen off and, and, uh, and, you know, I knew that I would never be like, you know, like one of these dudes, which are what I'm going to talk about now is the next generation of dudes that largely make their living playing in other dudes' bands or other projects. Dudes like Bumblefoot and Buckethead and John Five, fucking John Petrucci. You know, these guys are fucking incredible fucking guitar players. But they just, like, don't really have a thing. I mean... They don't have a viable project of their own because the musical landscape has changed so much 
in fucking uh, as far as people who buy music or people who go to concerts. You know, uh, you don't have uh, uh, Santana selling out fucking Oakland Stadium anymore. That that shit. You know, Santana's at the fucking at the bull ring now. You know, uh, even even though he's big still again. It's, it's just not the way it used to be. So those dudes have to survive on um, on how they can, you know? Because I know, like, so many dudes around here in San Diego and in L.A. that are fucking brilliant musicians, and they just can't get a gig because there's just not no gig to get, you know? Uh, there's, a band, there's a band here in town that's called Systematic Chaos, and they are a dream theater tribute band that tells you all you need to know you know they play those fucking songs note for note that's how talented they are you know that's how proficient they are and they fucking they have jobs during the day dude you know so yeah it's 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 a crazy it's a crazy time where you could actually be great you could be a great guitarist and no one will ever know you know, on the other hand, you could throw some shit up on YouTube and if it fucking, if it gets hot, you could be the next fucking guy. You know, you could get in a band because somebody heard you on YouTube. So it's a weird, weird time as far as all that shit goes. But uh, I really don't know what's going on right now. I would like to pretend as if I did. I really don't. So I Googled... Uh, best guitarists right now and uh and or best metal guitarists right now and the dudes that i got were uh their names are i didn't write them down but i remember them kind of but basically they're the dudes from mastodon the dudes from dragon force the dudes from trivium and the dudes from avenge sevenfold now i've seen all these bands live because I've seen them open for other people. <clears throat> They're not um, bands that I have their records. They're not bands that I would probably go see on their own. But I've seen them in small showcases. And, uh, yeah, you know, they shred, man. They're fucking, they're awesome. They're fucking, uh, they're on point. I don't, um... But I don't see anything terribly unique about any of them. Uh, I don't see anything um, amazing that, whereas I would still see if I go watch Steve Vai, if I go watch um, Satriani, if I go watch um, Vinnie Moore and Vinnie Moore in UFO, or uh, or like these new guys that are out that I call them like the super, super sidemen who are dudes like uh, Doug Aldridge, Chris Broderick, Joel Hoekstra. These are dudes that can play anything in any style without any effort or so it seems like. Fucking killers. Amazing. Probably some of the best guitar players who have ever lived <laughs> from a technical standpoint, you know. And so, 
it seems, well, Chris Broderick actually left Megadeth. He's in his own band now, which is cool because he'll have a more of a chance to do what he wants to do and, and influence due to the future. Now, the thing about the future is, man, I don't know. It's bleak. I see, like, every once in a while on uh, on YouTube or on fucking, on the internet, what I, what I, call, I call Facebook the TV. So I see it on TV that, uh, you know, some little seven-year-old girl is uh, ripping some Ingve or fucking, uh, or, or this little band of kids is fucking playing Metallica. And that's all well and good. But in my life, from what I've noticed, uh, I handed out, I handed out guitars for one Christmas. You know, I gave all my nephews an electric guitar with a little, um, Line 6 amp, right? So I'm talking about, you know, I'm talking about a, a busted up BC Rich Warlock with a fucking Line 6 amp. Fucking dream rig for a fucking 12-year-old in my day. Fucking quit it, you know? These fools never even fucking, never engaged with it. Never fucking, you know, uh, they didn't, never wanted to be a rock star. They never fucking, uh, Wanted to hit that fucking loud-ass power chord and, <clears throat> you know, just didn't. So, I don't know, man. I don't know if, the, if uh, and with the record business being what it is, you know, I'm not sure how many talented people really want to waste their time, in a sense, try, trying to uh, pursue music as a career, you know. And the thing is, is like... Um, is like, you know, now my dudes, my heroes here, they're fucking old. <laughs> they're fucking old as fuck. You know, uh, I saw, uh, I seen Last in Line, which is Vivian Campbell's band, where he plays Dio shit and, you know, updated songs that kind of sound like Dio. And I've seen them twice because... I, I just can't miss the chance to see him because I, they're just not guitar players like that anymore. Um, Ingve, if he comes, man, I go, you know, uh, you even though he's not the, the guitarist that he was, uh, he's still fucking sicker than sicker than sick, you know, so I still fucking go see his ass. Um, he was a major 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 influence you know that his stage you know act his you know even though it was very even though well i mean it was very uh blackmore in my fantasy world it was gonna lead from blackmore to ingve to me <laughs> you know um but it never really did it never really led to to that next guy you know i there there was not really the next guy I think somebody like Jason and Becker could have been that next guy. You know, um, honorable mentions, uh, Zach Wild, you know, Gus G, Slash, not for me, but for a lot of people, you know, love Slash. Um, Angus Young, Angus, Angus was great. His playing was not my style. It was a, a little rock and roll for me, but, you know, fucking... He was awesome, and on stage, he was awesome. Uh, Dimebag Daryl. Personally, it, like I said, he came a little bit after my formative years. 
So I appreciated him as a guitarist. He wasn't really that much of an influence because, uh, because um, he was just after me, you know. Uh, Carrie King, Jeff Hanneman, you know, uh, to me a little bit more novelty, but still, you know, I, there's nothing wrong with a fucking, uh, a nice fucking Carrie King fucking whammy fucking pull up and fucking slam down, you know, I fucking like that shit, it's cool. Um, there's, uh, Chuck Schuldiner from Death, he was fucking amazing what he did. I, I really didn't get a chance to fucking appreciate it that much. Uh, Brian May was cool. He he had that, that tone and what he could do with a few notes was fucking amazing. Tom Morello, I love what he does. So fucking creative. I love that band. Um, you know, even though it's, it's you know, I mean, you know, it's it's pedal driven and it's it's got some weird shit, but fuck, I love it. And he can get all legato with it too, you know. Um, once again, uh, with Queensryche, I had a guy, Chris DeGarmo was my guy out of the two. And, you know, <clears throat> I fucking, he had, uh, he had a great uh, economy of notes, you know, he didn't play too much. He, uh, he had his, his, all of his lines that he played were, um, relevant to the song, you know, top notch, top notch dude, Alex Lifeson from Rush, fucking shit, again, uh, I knew I could never play that way, I knew, you know, those fucking chords, come on, man, I fucking, you know, I don't even know where I would be as far as trying to remember some of those fucking chords nowadays. Luckily, I never knew them to fucking, so I don't have to try to remember them. Uh, yeah, I, I knew I could never play like that, but but I I appreciated it, and I love Rush. It's one of, one of my favorite bands in the world. It's just, um, you know, I, I couldn't play like that. So I had, I had a limited uh, interest in, you know, dissecting it because I knew that I, that I couldn't do it. Um, Ted Nugent, fucking Ted, for as much of a fucking asshole and a dick and every fucking other insult that I could probably hurl at the motherfucker, god damn that boy could play, you know, you could fucking, back in the days of the, the fucking Double Live Gonzo and all that shit, fucking loincloth and fucking swinging fucking across the stage, that was a bad motherfucker, man, and, and he could really, really fucking play, again, not a, not a style that I love. But, yeah, man, forget it. Um, let's see. Who else is showing up? Robert Fripp. That's another dude that uh, Guitar Shop Talk was, uh, you know, King Crimson. Um, you know, the uh, progressive, you know, type of shit. And, again, you know, it was cool, but I fucking... I could listen to something else, you know. Um... Akira, Akira Takasaki, uh, from Loudness, he, I liked him, man, I liked him a lot when I was a kid, and, uh, some of, some of, uh, some of his, um, tremolo stuff, and some of his harmonic stuff, or whatever, I kind of, I kind of took, you know, I, I, I took that shit, um, Alex Skolnick, Alex Skolnick from Testament, <clears throat> monster monster guitar player testament fell just a little bit outside of my uh of my liking but there was uh of my loving i should say i liked him i like him still uh 
but I, it wasn't something that I listened to all the time. Um, also, uh, another thing that I went back and discovered was um, Thin Lizzy. The dudes from Thin Lizzy, Scott Gorham and Brian Robertson, were fucking monsters. And the and the uh, the harmony playing that they did, that's pretty much where Iron Maiden got it from. And obviously, I love Iron Maiden. So, yeah, you know, going back and finding out the roots of everything is 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 a trip you know when you when you fucking when you look back on that shit um phil collin and steve clark from fucking Def leopard they were cool man in the set is especially because when they were fucking first getting big they were kids and that shit made me think that kids can definitely make it and i was planning on making it as a kid and it was these dudes who fucking pretty much inspired my first immense and huge failure. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, man, uh, Def Leppard, man, early shit. I, I loved it. Uh, I was famous, famously fucking, um, made fun of because I once traded a pyromania. I once traded a mob rules tape for a pyromania tape. And my friend Lenny fucking clowned the shit out of me for fucking a million years. Of course, I had two Mob Rules tapes. That's That never gets mentioned in the story. Only that I decided it would be a good idea to trade my Mob Rules tape for for uh, Pyromania. And that meant that I was fucking gay as fuck. So, you know, shout out again to the dudes from Def Leppard. And um, this is actually a punch-in. I had to fucking do it because I left a dude out and I didn't want to fucking leave a dude out. And that dude is Brad Gillis. Brad Gillis doesn't get no love, man. He fucking came in to a tough situation, replacing one of the baddest motherfuckers that ever fucking lived in a tragic situation. He came in, he did the fucking tour, he did it right. He did the live album, Speak of the Devil, which to me is underrated and was something that I played over and over and over and actually was like my introduction to a lot of those fucking Sabbath songs at that time. And fucking Brad Gillis was awesome, man. He was the fucking uh, pioneer of the Floyd Rose. I'm a Floyd Rose dude. I fucking I loved his tremolo work. I loved the way his representation of the Randy songs also. And yeah, man, big time honorable mention to Brad Gillis. Can't fucking leave him out. Sorry, Brad. And well, man, that's about it, man. I'm out of steam, man. I've been talking for a long ass time. Uh, I hope this fucking was entertaining. I don't know. Uh, uh, I think I would like it. I think I would like to listen to it. So that means maybe you'll like it too. <clears throat> Until the next one, hopefully we'll have Castleberry next week back and we're finally going to get around to that rainbow episode. And so there it is. This is Big Frog signing off. Until the next one for the Hit Light Podcast, this is Big Frog and I'm out.